This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Tonight our lesson is called True Story. We're going to be talking about telling truthful stories. Now, you might say that that seems like a very simple topic that we're going to be able to cover very quickly. Um, But there is more to it than you might think. And so I want us to pray together, and then I want to start out by sharing a story with you tonight. Uh, So let's pray together and ask God's blessing. Father, we are grateful for all that we can learn from your word. And we ask tonight that you would help us to um, truly, truly learn from your word. May uh, what we consider tonight be uh, based on what you say and who you are. May it make us better servants for you. Would you guide us as we consider the practical side of this idea of storytelling? Would you help this to be practically helpful? But uh, ultimately, would you help it all point to Jesus Christ? We pray this in his name. Amen. So, going to take you to an example in Scripture. Uh, there's a widow with tears in her eyes. She's standing before the king of Israel. And she tells her sad story to the king. She's traveled 12 miles from Tekoa. And when she enters king, da- king David's presence, she immediately falls on her face and she calls out, Help, O king! She then lays out her sad tale. Her husband has died leaving her with two sons. Well, to pile sorrow on top of sorrow, her two sons got in a fight with each other, and one killed the other. So not only is she widowed, but now she's lost one of her sons as well. And now she tells David the family is calling for blood. Uh, She's being called on to release her one remaining son to those who would exact revenge for for the murder, trading death for death. But for this poor widow, this would only compound her already unbearable sorrow. This son is the only one she has left. And now they're calling for him to be killed for what he's done. And she looks to the king and she says dramatically with tears in her eyes, so they shall quench my coal which is left. Basically, they're going to take away my one last hope, my one last joy. Well, King David tries to brush her off. He tells her to go back home and to await his instructions. But she's not going to be turned away that easily. She presses the king until he finally relents and he gives her this promise. He says, as the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of thy son fall to the earth. So she's gotten her her goal. Her persistence has paid off. But the woman is not done. Something in her demeanor changes as she looks the king full in the face and she says, Let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak one word unto my lord, the king. Now you need to understand that as that woman stands in King David's presence, pleading for the life of her son, all is not well in the kingdom of Israel. King King David's own family has gone seriously off the rails. His son Absalom has become estranged. He's been in hiding for three years, uh, fearing reprisal after he killed his brother Amnon. King David is heartbroken by the whole situation. He stands ready to receive his son back. And he's willing to look the, the other way on the whole murder issue, but he has yet to do anything about it. 
Well, the woman who came to plead for the life of her son now makes a case for the king's son, Absalom. She draws an all-too-easy parallel between the king's predicament with his son and her own, arguing that David needs to cut Absalom a break. Her argument is uh, very compelling. She asks the king, how could he be willing to grant mercy to her son, and yet he's unwilling to grant mercy to his own son, Absalom? Really, he's afraid that the nation would be unwilling to grant mercy to his son. But she tries to point out how foolish it is for him to think that way. And she even uses a little bit of flattery. She tells David, as an angel of God, so is my lord the king to discern good and bad. Well, David realizes that he's been duped. This woman is not here for him to fix her family problems. In fact, she's there to help him fix his family problems. And David accurately guesses that she's not acting alone. He has a hunch about the real source of this conspiracy, who it was that sent this woman in the first place. He asked the woman, is not the hand of Joab with thee in all this? Joab is David's general and advisor, and he's also his nephew. So he knows David well. And uh, David was right. Joab had masterminded the whole thing. He came up with this story, and then um, he recruited this woman to tell the story to the king, all for the purpose of, of course, bringing his attention to the, to the situation with Absalom and making a plea for the king to bring Absalom back. Well, David catches Joab and this woman from Tekoa in their lie, but he still agrees to bring Absalom home, and he dispatches Joab to bring home the prodigal. This shows us that Joab knew how to use a story. He understood how to get the king's attention. He knew David. He knew what was going to grab his attention. And perhaps we could learn a thing or two from him. But Joab did something that no child of God ever ought to do in order to tell a compelling story. He lied. Joab crafted a false narrative, and then he passed it off for truth. Enlisting the help of a skilled accomplice to make it more believable. And it was effective, but it was still wrong. And the first thing that I want to drill home tonight, and I intentionally put this before any other practical instruction in storytelling, is this. In all of your stories, tell the truth. It's sad, but it's true that many people automatically associate stories and storytelling with falsehood. We joke about exaggerating stories, telling colorful stories, twisting things just a little bit in our stories. Uh, there's the whole uh, joke about fish stories. You know, it was th th this big. Well, many stories are easier to tell, and they're more fun to listen to if we add a splash of falsehood to our truth. The bigger the fish, the closer the call, the more stressful the situation, the more compelling that story tends to be. So if you exaggerate a little bit, it makes for a better story, right? But let me make this crystal clear for you. If you don't get this rule, you might as well ignore the rest of what I have to say. If you truly want to use stories to make a lasting difference for the glory of God, 
then you must always, without fail, in every situation, regardless of the consequences, always follow this rule. Don't lie. You might say, that's so simple, we get that, we understand, we tell the truth because we're Christians. Um, but I think this is a point that really needs to be made. You know, in Ephesians 4, Paul is talking to the believers in the city of Ephesus, and he's talking about the spiritual principle of putting off the old nature, renewing our minds, and putting on the new nature. He talks about that in verses 22, 23, and 24. And then in verse 25, he talks about some of the practical ways that the new nature is going to make itself known, some of the evidences of that new nature in our life. And what is the very first evidence that he talks about? He says, wherefore, or because of all that that I just talked about, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. So are you a Christian? Do you have new life? What is the outward proof of that? Well, there are many of them, but what is exhibit A? Christians tell the truth. Now you might think, okay, I get the idea. We don't have to belabor this so much but I really want this to ring in your ears tonight. In storytelling, always tell the truth. Now, it really is something that storytellers wrestle with. Because like I said, stories are often easier to tell and more compelling if they're not quite 100% true. Because reality doesn't always shape itself into the best stories. But if we can just tweak it a little bit, we can really make it sing. And so storytellers are tempted to do that a little bit. In fact, many storytellers would say, that's okay. I'm reading a book right now uh, about storytelling by a secular author. And in one chapter that I read earlier this week, he was talking about some of the ways in which it's okay to lie in your storytelling. That's the way he said it. And his justification was, well, it's fine because it makes for a better story. It's okay if you play with the truth a little bit because it'll, it'll make it more interesting for people to listen to. It'll really just help the story to flow a little bit better. And so he said, it's, it's okay. It's okay if you lie in some little ways in your storytelling. Now, I've learned some things from that book, but I'm here to tell you that we as Christians need to live, need to act at a different standard than secular storytellers. Because our goal and our purpose is different. Secular storytellers are trying to entertain. We ought to be trying to point people to the Lord. And how can we use lies or stretch the truth and do that? Um, but I'll tell you that, and, and I've experienced this, that, that you, will, you will be tempted to gloss over things just in little ways to kind of tweak a story to make it more tellable. Don't do it. So why is it that we struggle there? Why is it that this is um, something that storytellers are motivated to do, to play fast and loose with the truth? Well, there's a story in Scripture in 2 Samuel 1. Uh, David there is just learning the details about a disastrous battle. So Saul and the army of Israel 
um, have just fought the Philistines and they were just decimated in a place called Mount Gilboa. Saul is dead, Jonathan is dead, and the soldiers of the Israeli army were either killed or fled the battlefield. So it's quite a blow to David to hear this news, but there's one man who sees the tragedy as an opportunity. He rushes to David, he falls on his face before him, he's ready to relay a stunning tale from the recent battle. Now this man is an Amalekite. The Amalekites were not friends of Israel. In fact, it's funny to read this because in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 1, it just tells us that David has just returned from slaughtering the Amalekites. And now here's this Amalekite coming before him with this story. Um, so they were not friends of, of the Israelites. But this particular Amalekite has a bit of news that he thinks that David is really going to enjoy. So David asks him what news he has to share. And he tells David that Saul and Jonathan are dead. David asks him for confirmation. And here's what the man tells him. As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him, and when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me, and I answered, Here am I? And he said unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me, for anguish is come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and had brought them hither unto my Lord. Won't David be happy to hear that his longtime enemy, the one who's been chasing him around trying to kill him, is finally dead. And here is this man not only telling him that he helped kill him, but here's his crown. Well, David did not respond the way the man was expecting. Instead of jubilation, he responds with sorrow and anger. And he orders that the man be killed right then and there for laying a finger on God's anointed king. His order is carried out. The man is put to death. But you know the crazy thing about the whole story? Best we can tell... The guy made it up. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 31, the previous chapter, it tells us how Saul died. He was wounded in the battle, and he fell on his own sword to end his life to keep the enemy from doing it for him. That doesn't match up with the Amalekite story. So why would he make up this part about his own involvement? He thought it would serve his purposes. He was motivated by the same thing that always motivates people to exaggerate or stretch the truth when they tell stories, and that is self-promotion. Fish stories do not glorify God or point souls to him. The fuel for that sort of story is pride. It's a desire for people to look at us and think that we are amazing, interesting, or funny. And as Christians, we must take to heart the fact that it is better to be a boring storyteller than to be a lying storyteller. We need to guard the truth. So, I know I belabored that point, and intentionally so, but we can move on now. All right. Um, there is a simple test 
that might help you. If you're telling this story and there was someone else who was there when the story happened, would they say, that's not how it happened? <laughs> if so, then maybe you ought to revisit how you're telling the story and see if there's something wrong. So always tell the truth. But like I said at the beginning, telling truthful stories is a bit more involved than that. It's not good enough to just avoid intentionally lying. That's not enough. Telling truthful stories also involves doing your research. Stories who are, uh, storytellers who are committed to the truth will do their homework. Now, I don't mean the homework for this class, okay? Um, they'll verify the facts of the stories they tell to the best of their ability. You know, every story that I've ever told in a public way, I've had to research for. And that even includes stories that happened to me. Let me give you an example. Um, there's a story I've told a couple times that I'll, I'll probably share the whole thing later on in the course, but it's about my son Aaron. He was two, and there was a lesson that God drove home to my heart um, when he responded a certain way in a, in, a, in, in a situation. Well, when I prepared to tell that story on my podcast, um, I did a couple of things. First, I looked back at a note on my phone. I knew that on my phone I'd, I'd taken a few notes after that happened just to remind me of what had happened. But then I also talked to my wife um, about what happened that night to make sure I was remembering things right. Because memory is a funny thing. Sometimes it works great. But often as time goes on, it fades, and, and we understand that, but it also warps. So sometimes we will remember things in a way that is not how they actually happened. And often, the more that we tell a story, especially one from our own lives, the less accurate it becomes with time. So we need to do our best to fight against that tendency. And one of the best ways we can do that is by doing what we can to research, even our own stories, if we have the opportunity. So if some, was somebody else there? Let me talk to them. And, and let's talk back and forth, because they might remember it differently from how I do. And sometimes you can go back and forth and really settle on, on the actual facts. But the idea of researching stories certainly applies in other areas as well. Like when we share stories from the Bible or we tell stories from history, whenever possible, we ought to go straight to the source because sadly, you can't believe everything you hear. Just because you heard a story doesn't mean it actually happened. And even if it did happen, the details might not all be accurate. Uh, when I was preaching the series I did on the book of Revelation, I was preparing a sermon on Revelation chapter 5. And that's where um, scripture talks about Christ, introduces Christ as the Lamb of God in Revelation. And that's a big theme through the book. And it's such an amazing chapter. And I really, I was just, I, I, I desperately wanted to do it justice. I wanted to express the deep emotion, the overwhelming wonder that John expresses there in that chapter. And as I reflected on the truths expressed there, specifically on Christ's identity as the Lamb, there was a story that popped into my mind that I'd heard in a sermon once. It was a story about two young Moravian men who sold themselves into slavery so that they could serve as missionaries to a West Indian island inhabited by two to 3,000 slaves. 
Slavery was their only way in. They knew that they were looking at a life of hard labor, punishing conditions. They were never going to see home or family again, but they did it anyway. And as they sailed away, they looked back at the weeping faces of their family and friends, and they cried out over the waves, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. I remember I heard that story, and it just gripped me. I was like, man, this would be a great story to tell as an illustration in this sermon. But there's a problem. It never happened. Here's what really happened. Leonard Dober and David Nietzschmann were Moravian men in the 18th century. And they were moved by Christ to go as missionaries to the island of St. Thomas. They met with some opposition trying to get there, even from fellow Christians who said, this is foolish, it'll be way too hard for you, you'll die, all kinds of things that were raised as objections, but they persisted, they were determined. According to one account, the men were asked by a court official how they would support themselves. And Nietzschmann replied, we shall work as slaves among the slaves. The official said, but that is impossible. It will not be allowed. No white man ever works as a slave. And so Nietzschmann told him, very well, I'm a carpenter, and I'll apply my trade. That's where the slave part comes into the story. Well, the two men did finally get the help they needed. They found passage on a Dutch ship, and they did meet challenges and opposition, but uh, they, they made it there to St. Thomas, and they saw the Lord provide. They experienced the blessing of souls being saved there. They poured themselves into the work for two years, and then they returned home, and continued to serve in the Moravian church back on the European continent. God used what they began in the West Indies. Other missionaries carried on the work, and they saw thousands of people come to Christ there in St. Thomas and St. Croix. However you say that exactly. Croix. 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 Okay. Thank you. That's what really happened with those two men. That phrase, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering, was not in any way uniquely tied to those men. It was a rallying cry that was used widely by the Moravians in their missionary endeavors. So that's the truth of what happened. Be honest with me. Which one of those stories is more compelling? <laughs> Which one grabs you? Well, admittedly, I could have told the true version a little better. But it's just not quite as thrilling. And I was sorely tempted when I preached that message to just say, the story is told, and then tell the non-true version. But as compelling as I knew that would be, I also knew it would be wrong. The truth about what happened is still an amazing story, and I did use it in the message that night. But that episode reminded me of the importance of doing my research. I need to be vigilant to guard the truth. I, I don't think that that preacher meant anything wrong. I don't think that he knew he was telling a story that wasn't true. And I don't, I, I'm not trying to cast blame on him at all. Um, in fact, it's an amazing sermon, and it's, and it's challenged me. Um, but we've got to be careful. Even if we think that we can trust it, do, do your research. Go back to the source. 
So as a storyteller, verify the facts. If it's a story from history, you can Google it um, or use the old-fashioned method and, and uh, look in a book. Uh, I would encourage you, if you Google it, make sure you have at least two sources, if not three, um, especially if one of them is Wikipedia, all right? Um, because you can certainly find plenty of, of, plenty of uh, compelling lies on, online. Um, if it's a Bible story, read the account carefully. Consult biblical cross-references. If it's a story from your own life, ask other people who were there. Now, if you do your best and there's some, still some details you're just not sure about, that's okay. Just be honest about it. I don't remember exactly how this happened. This part, I think this is what happened, you know. And that's okay. But we do need to do our research. We need to guard the truth. And I believe that's part of our responsibility as those who are communicating on God's behalf. And specifically, we'll be tempted in certain ways as storytellers to leave that behind us. Don't do it. Now, all that said, I want to be clear what I'm not saying. I want to talk about editing. While you always should tell nothing but the truth in your stories, there is a sense in which you do not need to tell the whole truth. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I referenced the story about the Amalekite and Saul a little bit ago, and I left out a lot of details. So I didn't mention the time frame, the fact that uh, David... It had been three days since David had returned from fighting the Amalekites. I didn't mention that. I didn't mention all the details of Saul's death. I didn't tell you that uh, Saul had been wounded by arrows. Uh, I didn't mention that Saul asked his armor bearer to kill him, and the armor bearer refused, and then only then did Saul kill himself. Uh, I didn't mention that along with Saul and Jonathan, two more of Saul's sons, Abinadab and Malkishua, had also been killed in the battle. I didn't mention that the Philistines had found Saul's body, cut off his head, and sent it around to show off the fact that they had killed Israel's king, or that they had put the body of Saul and his sons on the wall in Bethshan as a testament to their victory. Nor did I mention that the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead had snuck in, taken the bodies down, and given them a proper burial. I also didn't give you every word of the conversation between David and the Amalekite. Now, why didn't I tell you all of that in the telling of the story? Well, I, my chosen term is editing. See, all those details are recorded in Scripture, and for good reason, but they did not serve this specific telling of the story and the point that I was trying to drive home. I was not trying to deceive you or give you a false picture of the story. I was simply eliminating details that would draw your attention away from where I wanted to point it. Now, we'll talk more about the specifics of editing in the next few lessons, but I wanted to mention it now because I didn't want you to get the wrong idea. Don't imagine that telling truthful stories means telling every single detail. No one likes a story that tells every single detail. I do that a lot. <laughs> it's very tedious and it's unhelpful. And, you know, it's interesting to me as I was thinking about this that Scripture, uh, the stories in Scripture are full of examples of inspired editing. Uh, think about how often the story of Scripture just jumps over, skips over large portions of time. Uh, if you've been reading the church Bible reading plan, you just finished reading Genesis. So think about, for example, the life of Jacob. Um, so he goes to work for Laban. 
the agreement is made he's going to work seven years uh, in order to make Rachel his wife. And then, bam, seven years are done, he's marrying her. <laughs> well, and it's actually Leah, yeah. Um, and then later on, it talks about all of his, his kids being born. And it's like, bam, this son is born, bam, this son is born, bam, this son is born. Well, we know it's not happening just one after another. There's at least nine months between um, if it's a different, if it's the same wife. But uh, Scripture just skips over much of those details because the Holy Spirit knew and the Holy Spirit decided that is not necessary to the telling of the story. So if you say, I'm going to share this story, and this is an unhelpful detail, and so I'm not going to mention it, as long as you're not misleading people, or trying to deceive people, that is not being untruthful, all right? I just wanted to make that clear because I think that we can sometimes kind of put the, put the two together. <coughs> now, I feel like we can't completely cover the topic of truthful stories without asking a question. And that is, what about fiction? If we're supposed to only tell truthful stories, does that rule out fiction? Does that mean that fiction is not valid, not something that we as Christians ought to have any part in. Well, there are many Christians who are pretty strongly against fiction, but clearly not all Christians are. Um, we all know the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Um, it's a fiction series by C.S. Lewis about children who are thrust into a fantastical land called Narnia, and the series is intended to share spiritual truth. And there are people who adore Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, and there are other people who abhor them. <coughs> so what should we think about Christian fictional endeavors like this? Well, I don't think I even need to reference a specific scriptural example to convince you that the Bible presents a wide array of fictional stories that are told to drive home spiritual truth. The parables. Um, just to name one example. There must then be a, pl a place for fiction in our storytelling as Christians. In fact, I would argue that fiction, if properly done, can often drive home the truth more clearly and powerfully than an actual true story can. Think about The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. This book is still in print after nearly 350 years, and there's a good reason for that. It has served as a powerful ch challenge and help to Christians over the centuries. And in that book, if you've never read it, I would really encourage you to do it. Some people are scared away by the old English. Um, I don't think you need to be. Once you get into it, I think, I, I think it's, it's digestible. But... Uh, in that book, Bunyan personifies the challenges and the types of people that we encounter in our Christian life. So he turns them into characters. He also turns trials and temptations and rest and refreshment in our Christian lives into places. So he gives us this, these physical pictures of spiritual truths. And I think that in a unique way, it gives us a clear sight to see those things for what they really are. Symbolic. Right. So you take the, 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 um, those truths we can't quite put our hands on, and he makes it something that's material. He, he creates, he uses the, the symbolism 
but um, he really brings it to life. He causes us to think about those things in perhaps some new ways um, and, and think perhaps more clearly about some of those things because of how he, he brings the spiritual and in a sense at least makes it physical. Now to have simply told the story of his own spiritual journey might have been helpful. And Bunyan does that, uh, at least to some degree, in another book, Grace Abounding, to the Chiefest of Sinners. But when Bunyan couched all of that in the way he did in Pilgrim's Progress, he masterfully made it not just one man's journey, but every Christian's journey. And that's what good fiction does. So I do think that there's a place for fiction with believers. Now, we need to be careful with that, just like we do with, uh, with true-to-life stories. Of course, we ought not pass off fiction for, for reality, but also our fiction ought to be truthful in the sense that it ought to be true to life. Characters need to be relatable, understandable. We need to be able to put ourselves in their shoes. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that happens in the Chronicles of Narnia or the Pilgrim's Progress could actually happen in real life. What it does mean is that we find ourselves sympathizing with Edmund, even though Turkish delight isn't really all that good. <laughs> we also find ourselves shouting out to Christian to go back when he leaves his precious role in the arbor on the Hill of Difficulty. Good fiction is relatable. It draws us in. It makes us invest in the story because the characters in good fiction are caricatures of reality. And we can often recognize ourselves or other people in fictional characters. So fiction will obviously not be true in the sense that it's the retelling of actual events, but it should be truthful in that it is true to life. So question. Yes, sir. So the story that you told in, in, at the beginning with the lady, that was not a fictional story. It was a fictional story. The issue with it was she was passing it off as truth. That's the, that's, the, that's the problem. So if you look at the stories that, that Jesus tells, he was not trying to fool anyone into believing that this fictional story actually happened. So when Nathan addressed David with his story, was that pure fiction or was it passing off as truth? Well, and honestly, this, is, this whole thing made me think about that story, okay. and I was hoping nobody would bring it up. But. <laughs> Because I, I do think that, that Nathan intended at the beginning, and, and the story suggests, that he intended David to think he was telling a true story. Now, he didn't intend to keep that, that um, deception going, but it still begs the question, was that or was that not justifiable? And uh, It's splitting hairs, what I see. <clears throat> Nathan... Did, did uh, say, you're the one, right. as compared to David saying to the, the, the woman, did you do this, or did someone te tell you to do this? That becomes the difference between the stories, you know, according to what's, what I read. Yeah. But uh, the story itself, to me, they were uh, very much identical. Yeah, so there's a lot that's the same between the two, um, and that's... That, that was something that perceived though. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that to me, the biggest thing is it, it's a caution 
to me. Um, I I think that God, uh, that you know, both both effectively accomplish their goal. Um, I do think that based on the rebuke that that David gives with the whole thing with Joab, that that Joab was not acting as he should have. Scripture seems to suggest that Nathan was acting in a good way. So where is the distinction between the two? And it is, it's hard to say where that line is. And so I, my, my personal position on it would be, I'm going to push the line back. I'm not going to start a story trying to fool somebody into believing that it's true. I want to be clear from the way I'm telling it. And that doesn't always mean that you start out by saying, this is a fictional story. But there are ways that you can signal that very easily, um, or very clearly, and uh, I would I would suggest, and I personally um, want to shy away from, in that sense, imitating what Nathan did. Um, in some ways, what Nathan did was very commendable, and it was very effective, but the deception part of it is a hard thing to wrestle with. Well, it begins with you know, chapter 12 with the, you know, the Lord sent Nathan to David. So he was sent by God you know, to, to share with him. Right. And it's specified that way as compared to the way the woman was sent. Right. Okay. Well, and he, he did point out that, um, you know, as soon as um, David responded, Nathan immediately let him know that it was not true. Whereas in the other one, David had to question him before the lady admitted that someone had put her up to it. So she didn't really have the, the intent of, you know, pressing up. Yeah. Really but I, I do, I mean, I think that, that it's, I think that we can see looking at the stories that that Nathan was acting as he should have, and Joab and this woman were not. But as far as the action point for us, to me, I'd say, I, I want to I take a little bit of a step away and say, yes, God blessed, blessed what Nathan did. Yes, God might have fed him the whole script. I don't know. God obviously sent him. I don't know if God said, Nathan, this is the way I want you to do this, or if it was... Nathan, you need to go confront David, and Nathan himself, in prayer before God or whatever, came up with this. I, I don't know, but though God bless that, that's some tricky, dangerous ground to me, um, and something we ought to be really cautious on. And so, um, it that's. That was something that I wrestled with in this in this lesson, that specific example. Mm -hmm. well, um, Jesus would always use parables based on real life, like I forgot how many days Jonah is in a well. He brought that up in a conversation to someone. Well, and Jesus had a way of signaling for parables. He said, <laughs> if you guys could calm down in that back corner, please. <laughs> Um, Jesus had some ways of signaling parables. So he would say, a certain man. That was one of the ways he would signal that this is a parable. And uh, you'll see a lot of the stories that he'll tell will start out that way. Um, and so most of the time as we're reading Jesus, 
teaching, it's really clear, okay, this is a parable now. Um, just by certain things that he said. It's not that he said, this is not true. Um, and, and many of the times in scripture where we see somebody using, using a fictional story like that, it's very clear. And it's clear that they weren't trying to fool anybody. Um, so I guess my answer would be, I don't know exactly where the distinction is. So I take my hat off to Nathan, but I'm not exactly going to imitate him in that, in that respect. Do your research. Well, he, he, also, he also did say, you know, start off with saying that there were two men in a city. Doesn't specify who, what, you know, one rich, one poor. Well, and there was started off, you know, kind of the same way that Jesus would have started off the parable, saying there was a certain man. Yeah. In the light as compared to the woman saying, um, you know, this is, this is my story, and now we'll change it over to your story. <coughs> It, it puts on fake clothes and makes herself all up to look like she's been mourning a long time. Mm -hmm. A masquerade. Yeah, deception, deception is compared to um, uh, a story, if you will. Right. And one of the ways I would say that, um, going even along with what you're saying, is one of the ways that you kind of signal this is fiction rather than truth. Mm -hmm. When we're telling a true story, we, we tend to start with some specifics. We'll put you in a certain place in a certain time with a certain person, and um, and we'll even talk about using some of that to, to bring the story to life. When when it's a fictional story, a parable or whatever, it's often starts vague. So sometimes you have a place setting, often you don't. Rarely do you have much description given to the characters. They're 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 vague characters, and often those are the signals. That okay, this is a, a fictional story. It's a, it's a type. It's a picture of something to teach a truth. Um, so, but I. So that's very important. Obviously, sometimes we can even do wrong things with the right motivation, but that is important, and we do see that clearly in the story. So I don't cast, throw any stones at Nathan, but it is a, it is a tricky line to walk um, and say where exactly all the distinctions are. Um, so I did uh, give you a few tips very quickly. Um, I, I really appreciate the question. And I want to try to give more, more time for questions. Um, I'm going to run out of time again this week. But um, i give you a few tips on using historical stories. Um, history is brimming with thrilling and relatable stories. Um, if you're one of those people that doesn't like history, um, then I, I think you've never seen history in, in this way. Because history is so um, human. <laughs> and so interesting and so um, relatable if you're looking at it this way instead of the, just the timelines and all that, all that stuff. So there are a lot of uh, stories there. It can be a great resource for someone wanting to tell stories that will make people think and consider spiritual truths. I just want to give you a few simple things to think about as you try to glean good stories from history. 
So first of all, look for eyewitness accounts. Um, this is really helpful if you're telling a story from history, if you can get some of the details from somebody that was actually there. Because a story from history is only as interesting as it engages you with the people that were there. All right, we think of history as kind of this nebulous thing. History is people. And so the more you can hone in on that, the better. Um, you know, I told that the story in, in church back in December about the, the astronauts and the moon and, and all that. But as I was studying for that, one of the moments that really told me this is a good story to tell is when I came across Jim Lovell talking about his experiences. And specifically, he talks about that moment when he put his thumb up and he could cover up the moon. That puts us all there in the command module. And all of a sudden, this is not about the moon or the Russians or Apollo 8. It's about people. That's when it becomes a story that I care about. It's not just the facts or the big historical stuff. It's the fact that the people are right in the middle of it. That's what draws us all into stories. And so in history, look for those eyewitnesses. Accounts are really helpful. Um, also, choose stories about individuals. It doesn't have to be about a moment that changed history. It could just be a moment that changed someone's life. But whether it's a world-changing event or something really minor in the grand scheme of things, it needs to center around individual people. All right? If your story does not have individual people, it's not going to be a very compelling story. It might be about grand armies and huge campaigns and world-changing event, but if there aren't individuals, nobody's really going to care. And then look for details that bring the scenario to life. Um, there's a, a, a story that I've told, I potentially will tell the whole thing later on in the class, I'm not sure, um, about a guy named Wheeler Lipes. Um, this guy who removed uh, another guy's appendix 120 feet below sea level in a submarine during World War II. Um, it's it's a, a pretty crazy story. It really did happen. With the grapefruit spoon? No. <laughs> well, no, but they didn't have all of the all of the equipment for surgery. You weren't supposed to do surgery on a, on a submarine. So one of the things as I was studying that I came across that really helped, just some of those specifics that really put you there, um, they used spoons from the galley to serve as retractors to hold the incision open, okay? So they bent the spoons and used them as retractors. They used a tea strainer filled with gauze as the stand-in anesthesia mask. That's why he's holding spoons and a strainer in this picture, by the way. Uh, the sub's machinist helped Lipes to, to fashion a makeshift handle for the scalpel because the scalpel didn't have a handle. Those are the details that put you there, and you realize, because you, you hear those details, Man, they did not have what they needed. And it puts you there. And, it, and, it, and when you get those details, that makes it come to life. So those are just a few things I would say to look for. If you're wanting to, to tell stories from, use stories from history, um, those will be ways that you can find good stories that people really connect with and that you can use to, um, to really get, get a, a point and a lesson across. Uh, you have the instructions for this week's homework. Go ahead and look that over. If you have questions about that, feel free to reach out to me. It should be pretty straightforward. Um, 
I thought, uh, I kind of already leading in this direction anyway, but then Pastor was preaching on Acts 7 with Stephen, so I thought, kill two birds with one stone, you'll study Acts 7, it'll get you ready for Sunday and the rest of that message, and it'll get, it re- get you ready for class next week, so it's just perfect. Um, and then, of course, if you have, if you have questions, um, feel free to reach out to me as well. I know that a lot of the things we talked about this week were simple, and uh, honestly, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about in this class is going to be pretty simple. Some of it, I think, will be self-explanatory. Some of it will be stuff where you're like, yeah, I hadn't necessarily thought of it that way before, but that's true. Um, But I really wanted to start by making this emphasis, because I think that needs to set the tone for the whole thing. In our stories, we need to be truthful. And that's one of the ways that we as Christians are set apart from storytellers in the world. And it's key if we're going to see ourselves used by God the way we want to. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.